So as Marcus said, I'm one of the co-authors of Bots at the Gate, uh, which is a human rights analysis of automated decision-making system in Canada's immigration and refugee decision-making apparatus. This, I will tell you a little bit about how this project came to be, uh, what it is and where it's going. So it's a collaboration between the International Human Rights Program, where I'm a lawyer and uh, a researcher at the University of Toronto, just down the street, and the Citizen Lab at the Monk School. Um, my co-author, Lex Gill, unfortunately, her current job prevents her from speaking publicly to this work, so it does fall to me. And I will put a little caveat in there. I'm a refugee lawyer and human rights lawyer by training. I am by no means a technologist. So if there are questions or discussion points around the more technical aspects of algorithms and automated decision making, I am not the person to speak to that. This was a really natural split in this analysis because we provided the human rights and immigration piece and Citizen Lab did a lot of the technology and the, the critiques around um, the more nitty gritty pieces of, of uh, this analysis. But hopefully, I know we have some really amazing minds around the table as well, so in the discussion piece, we can hopefully have a fruitful conversation together. What I will do is I'm going to present a little bit about um, some of the main findings and ideas in the report, and then we'll open it up to a broader, broader conversation. But essentially, this report really lies at the intersection between human rights, migration, and technology. It came out quite organically um, out of a, an event that we held at the International Human Rights Program about six, seven months ago on what we call the dark side of technology and the human rights implications of how our world is changing. And then, given my background in immigration law and um, our general interest to try and expand beyond the usual questions that we look at, we thought, hmm, I wonder if there is an intersection between immigration and what's happening uh, along these more kind of innovative spaces. And so then we started looking into it and realized that Canada has been experimenting with the use of automated decision-making technology since at least 2014. Now in the report, we use the term automated decision-making um, kind of as a catch-all, and there's a whole section on um, definitions and why we chose this particular term over algorithm or AI, but again, just for simplification's sake, when I refer to AI or algorithm, these are the types of uh, technologies that we're talking about. Um, another thing that we really, of course, a, a crux of this work is that we're dealing with emerging technologies. Um, and our report is truly interdisciplinary because we're drawing from a variety of fields. And again, it was a, a natural uh, partnership between the Citizen Lab and the IHRP because we kind of do come at it from very different vantage points. But we were able to produce this report fairly quickly because I think there was such interest in trying to unearth what is or isn't happening. Um, and I will also tell you after I speak a little bit about the report what we did this week in Ottawa because it's been quite interesting and we had some very successful um, and fruitful conversations with the federal government and their various uh, departments. So there are really six takeaways um, from this work and then we will, we will unpack what it is that we actually did in the report. So what we know is that these technologies are already in use and in development. The question is we don't know exactly what this looks like. What we do know is that the sheer scale of potential impact is quite extraordinary because we're dealing with hundreds of thousands if not millions of different applications every year or at least entry points into the Canadian jurisdiction at the border, for example. So we really are talking about technologies that touch lives on a huge scale. And what we do in our report is we really try and highlight the fact that the risk to human life and human rights is real. These, the, the types of ramifications that this technology has are quite far-reaching. 
Um, even in this kind of uh, pre-development phase that the government seems to be going through. One of the main areas that we focus on in our work is immigration law, which is a really opaque discretionary space as it stands already. And there are weak procedural safeguards and oversights for the decision making that goes on. I will talk you a little bit through what we mean when we talk about the immigration system, but this is a central idea of the report. We're dealing with a population that generally has access to fewer rights and methods of redress than the general population. That's why it's troubling that these experiments are happening at this particular juncture. There's also a section in the report where we really do try and unpack this nexus between national security law, which again is probably as opaque as you can get. Maybe IP, IP is pretty opaque too, but uh, national security law and trying to understand how these technologies are being used in that space in terms of border control, in terms of security, that's a whole other, other area. And it's difficult to, to really get data on this. Really at the end of the day though, what we want to highlight as our central thesis is that there's this move towards fixing issues with immigration and refugee decision making by kind of slapping technology on it and this kind of techno-solutionism that countries like Canada and other countries as well that are engaged kind of on the forefront of ma migration management are engaging with. And in the report, we do a little bit of a cross-jurisdictional analysis as well to see what other countries are doing too. And Canada is no, by no means an outlier. Uh, even the UN, for example, has been dabbling with the use of predictive analytics to try and see if it can determine how refugee flows are moving and things like that. So really, this is these are technologies that are being experimented with across the board. So in the report, um, in the middle, uh, we really when we wanted to look at immigration law, the first thing that we thought would be important to do is create what we call this sort of taxonomy or brief review of Canada's immigration and refugee system. Because when we started working on this, it became very clear that it's not quite uh, known what Canada is or isn't doing when it comes to these technologies. But the troubling thing is that AI can be really introduced at many different junctures during a person's journey through the immigration system. Pre-arrival, at the border, when you're in the country, or when you're leaving Canada. So for example, this can mean determinations that are pretty innocuous, such as an AI system helping to say, oh, you know, this application is complete versus not complete. Maybe you missed a box or you forgot to attach a document, and then it gets triaged to a human decision maker to look at. But from a more conceptual perspective, because we also wanted to be forward-looking in our methodology here, we kind of played around with some ideas about you know, what would it look like if an automated decision-making system made a determination about something more complex. For example, is your marriage genuine or not? Is this adopted child of yours really your child? Do you qualify for humanitarian and compassionate protection? And I bring up humanitarian compassion in particular because one of the things that we did, well, first of all, when we tried to get an understanding of what is happening in Canada, um, we submitted 27 what's called access to information requests, or ATIPs. We are still waiting on all 27 <laughs> to come back, which you know made it really awkward in Ottawa when we met with border services and IRCC to discuss this because they just are not releasing data to us. But that's okay, we will keep fighting and we will make a complaint if they don't release it. That being said, we you know, we tried to get source data as much as we could, but we did analyze publicly available information and the government did go on record saying that they have been experimenting with these technologies since at least 2014. 
We're not quite sure what that looks like. They did commit to saying that it was with what's called Express Entry, which is an immigration application for status. And it's, it's pretty low risk in terms of the discretion that goes into those decision-making um, considerations, but it's still worrisome that the government doesn't quite seem to know what it is that they're doing with it. And then, in May of 2018, what's called a request for information came out from the immigration department to the private sector. So an RFI basically is a solicitation where you ask the private sector to you know, have a conversation with you to provide bids for new technology or a new product that the government can use. And in this RFI, conveniently titled Artificial Intelligence Solutions, we could do a whole discourse analysis on that, but that's a whole other topic. <laughs> that's for the next talk, perhaps. Um, they are looking for AI to help augment um, decision making at the front end by immigration officers. And for an immigration lawyer, what caught my eye was the fact that they singled out two applications, humanitarian and compassionate applications and pre-removal risk assessments. These two applications are probably one of the most discretionary immigration applications in the whole system. And by that I mean we already know that there's issues with human decision makers when they make these types of considerations. Generally, evidence is quite voluminous, there is no oral hearing, and two officers looking at the exact same file might make two completely different determinations. So it's quite troubling that the government is choosing this particular um, set of applications as their testing ground or their high-risk laboratory for experiments um, of this nature. So that's kind of what we know. Um, in terms of the policy engagement and standard setting, I'll talk a little bit about our trip to Ottawa in a bit, but we've uh, really been heartened by what has been happening uh, at the Treasury Board level. The Treasury Board is putting together a government-wide directive which would be binding across the federal government on the use of AI and human rights. And certain departments are exempt for national security purposes, for example, but generally, if you're part of the federal government, you have to take part in this directive. So there's there's moves uh, in the government thinking through what these technologies would look like, but it's very, very preliminary. And I should also note that the recommendations that we make in our report are based on the Treasury Board white paper, which was circulated, and if anyone's interested, I can pass that around as well. And, and again, yes, uh, another thing that we all, always have to think about too is this discourse around public safety, national security, and immigration because a lot of these technologies seem to be explored for the purposes of keeping certain groups out, fortifying our border, and really committing to a little bit more immigration context. But really, what we do in this report is we look at the potential usage of these technologies from a human rights perspective. And in the report, we go through the kind of fundamental internationally recognized human rights, such as freedom of association, religion and expression, freedom of movement, which is enshrined in the Refugee Convention, life, liberty, and security of the person, for example, because that right is engaged immediately if you have an algorithm deciding whether or not you should be deported to a country where you're trying to flee from. Uh, but what I will highlight for you today are two other rights. We're gonna talk about um, equality and freedom from discrimination in particular, and then some privacy considerations as well. So in our analysis, this, uh, this right, equality right, is really one of the crux issues in the report because we already know that algorithms have a pretty poor track record when it comes to making determinations. And one of the things that we always try to put at the forefront of any advocacy that we did with this report is to try and debunk the myth that AI is neutral. 
that somehow AI is more objective than a human decision maker would be in these contexts. But we already know that AI is far from neutral. And I'm not sure if there are you know, technologists in the room, so this, this explanation might seem a bit simplistic. But for those of us who are not, I like to think of an algorithm as a recipe. And if your recipe is biased, if the ingredients are biased, then whatever cake that comes out at the end is also going to be biased. And in the report, we detail some really troubling examples of algorithms making really problematic assumptions. For example, um, in the United States, there's been uh, algorithms used for what's called predictive policing. We're trying to determine where crime will occur, and perhaps not surprisingly, racialized groups are um, flagged at a much higher rate than non-racialized groups. Algorithms also have a really interesting track record on gender. Something as innocuous as job search will yield different results for men and women, generally lower paying jobs for women, higher paying jobs for men. There's also a really troubling application of an algorithm to create some sort of gaydar or an algorithm that can predict um, sexual orientation. Very, very problematic. So really, it's clear that these systems need to be unpacked from an equality and freedom of discrimination perspective, because if we're going to be using them in the immigration system, um, really the last thing we want to do is entrench bias and xenophobia or discrimination that might already be inherently in there. Um, from a privacy and data protection perspective, this is something very important uh, to consider when it comes to looking at the application of these technologies in the immigration and refugee space in particular. Because not to be too theoretical, but if you will permit me, I, it's, a, it's really interesting to look at immigration policies of a state like Canada because we often see that the state tries to make certain groups knowable and trackable and transparent, right? And generally that's migrants. And we also see that globally speaking, where states are trying to track migrants who are coming to the border. And funny enough, our title, Bots at the Gate, is a bit of a riff on Barbarians at the Gate, you know, this kind of, which is a, a movie and a book about um, actually a, uh, a uh, sorry, a corporate uh, fall of a, of a bank or something like that, but also it's the idea in literature, right, that you have barbarians, generally Slavic hordes, coming to take over uh, more developed countries. We wanted to play around with that idea because states like Canada in its legislative policy already are trying to make certain populations much more intelligible. And again, by the use of this technology, that the worry here is that more data isn't necessarily better, particularly when there are, enough, there are not enough privacy protections in place for these more vulnerable groups. So as an example, what will happen if Canada collects a bunch of data on a refugee applicant and then an algorithm decides, okay, you know, maybe this person should be deported, et cetera, et cetera. And then the data is shared with the government where the person is being sent back to. We already know that this happens from, for example, travel advisory lists. And funny enough, the European Court of Justice recently put out a decision that determined that Canada's data protection laws are not strong enough for the current EU data protection system. And they don't want to be engaged with sharing um, data traveler information with Canada. So courts are engaging with these ideas already, but it's important to look at privacy rights in a contextual way, especially in terms of how it affects a population like migrants and refugees. But again, in, in our analysis, we make it clear that all these human rights, the fundamental rights, and they all intersect and they all inform one another, especially when we're dealing with migrants. 
there's a whole other part to this too that I alluded to at the beginning where we are dealing with an incredibly opaque and discretionary system of law. So immigration law falls under what's called administrative law, which basically is the law of decision making. And generally speaking in Canada, the way this works is when you make a refugee claim or an immigration application, the, the court, quote unquote, of first instance is not a court at all. It is a tribunal staffed by bureaucrats usually or bureaucratically appointed people. And there's a lot of discretion, right? It's supposed to be an expert tribunal that makes these decisions. But the problem is that, like I said before, two differently trained officers will make two different determinations on the same file. It becomes very hard to review. The way it works in Canada is you can take an administrative decision to the federal court through the judicial review process, but we already know that there are issues with how that's done in practice, particularly with discretionary applications like the humanitarian and compassionate applications. And for those of you who are the legal eagles in the room, if you go to section 25 of the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, ministerial discretion is written right in there. So that's the whole idea that we need these gray areas in immigration because at the end of the day, the Canadian state needs to make the ultimate decision. But what happens when you in introduce these technologies into the decision-making space? And not to blow out the conversation even further, but what does it mean when we talk about decisions, when we are not just dealing with human beings? Is a decision an Excel sheet that tells you, oh, you know, maybe these applications are complete, these ones are not? Could be a decision. Is it an augmented decision where an algorithm might kind of force your hand in terms of its determination and say, oh, this is more likely than this, but then ultimately a human decision maker makes the final call? Or is it a truly autonomous system that will just pop out an answer and then that gets uh, that's the final decision? The issue with administrative law is that there are certain procedural justice protections in place. So for example, the right to know the case against you or the right of appeal. But again, from a conceptual perspective, what is it that you're appealing if there's an algorithm in place? And who is actually liable? You know, from a lawyer's perspective, we think about that. Is it the designer or the coder who coded the algorithm? Are they liable? Is it the government official who installed that software on the computer? Is it, is it the algorithm? Does an algorithm have legal personality? Oh my God, can we bring algorithms to court and sue them, you know, at the federal level? Like these are all questions that we need to think about. And it's troubling that governments are experimenting with these technologies without really thinking through the ramifications of the use. Standard of review is a whole other thing as well because decisions in the administrative space right now, in the immigration space, are, are assessed on a standard of what's called reasonableness. So it's not about whether a decision is correct, it's about whether it's reasonable. Again, what does that mean when an algorithm is making a determination and what constitutes a reasonable algorithm? More questions than answers, unfortunately, for you. The last part of our report also talks about other systemic challenges. One of them, for example, being a lack of technical capacity in the government. You know, a lot of government officials are, are they're generalists. You know, you have these specific outfits maybe within certain departments that focus on digital rights or human rights or AI. But overall, it's it's obvious that the government as a as a construct really doesn't have the technical capacity. So there is this there's always this worry that there will be an over-reliance on the private sector. And we saw that with the RFI, the request for information that was put out in 2018, in May 2018, right? The whole idea is that we want the private sector to be brought in so that we can, 
work together about how the government will roll out these technologies because, you know, for, for example, if you have a federal IT expertise, that's great, but with the immigration and CBSA officers, for example, that are going to be interacting with these technologies, how does that expertise then filter through to make sure that people who are interacting with AI are actually competent enough? Private sector accountability is another issue that we looked at because it, there are not enough safeguards in place right now, at least from our perspective, from a human rights perspective, on the development of these technologies. It's very exciting um, the way that these technologies are proliferating and potentially they have um, impact on maybe increasing efficiency or, or issues like that. But again, we have to make sure that there are, that however these um, technologies are rolled out, that they are still compliant with legal obligations under Canadian and international law as well. Access to justice is another big one. Um, we saw that with the request for information again, because one of the issues that the government is thinking through is how do we increase efficiency and how can we, for example, forecast litigation risk with the use of these technologies. But we already know that technology is not available to everyone on the same level. And it's actually, it's, it's a great example of uh, power hierarchies, right? And so if, if the government has access to these technologies, what happens to people who are self-represented? or who are represented by lawyers under the legal aid system who don't have access to the same type of technology. What is that going to look like? Public confidence is another one, and for us it was really interesting to see the uh, impacts of this report, because I think AI and technology is a very sexy topic that people like to think about and talk about, but we really need to engage it with it from a more systemic perspective, because we know it's being rolled out not just in immigration, but across the board. And perhaps here I can talk a little bit about our advocacy trip to Ottawa this week. Because it was really interesting to speak with government officials about this. Generally, our standard practice is when we release a report like this, we like to give the government the option to discuss it with us before it goes public. So the, government, so the, the report went public on Wednesday, and we met with 12 separate departments in advance of this, with Border Services, Innovation Canada, Treasury Board, that's the, the group that's putting together this government-wide directive, Immigration, even the Prime Minister's Office. So there's really a lot of interest, but it's very, very clear that the government, at least in our conversations right now, um, they're at the very preliminary stage of thinking through these technologies. And the worry here is that if we don't have these conversations around what it means to use AI critically and in accordance with human rights at the outset, this excitement around technology is going to mean that we're going to start implementing it and then it'll be much more difficult to correct five or 10 years down the line. And we all saw what happened with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. So I mean, I think it's in the government's best interest to have these conversations now before these issues really blow out of proportion. And I think the last thing I will say is that technology travels, right? And it's very clear that there are global impacts to experimenting in this high-risk way with these vulnerable populations. Because Canada does have kind of a unique opportunity because we have been positioning ourselves lately as an AI leader and also a leader in human rights. So, okay, fine, if you want to be a leader in human rights and AI, you have to make sure that it's done in a responsible way because other nations are going to take stock of what we are doing and potentially use the technology that we develop here in contexts that, for example, have even less uh, rights protections for uh, migrant populations. 
So that's really that's really the worry here. And what we call for in the report is at least at the very least a conversation before these technologies get developed any further. Because it's clear that we need different modes of accountability and oversight when it comes to this type of decision making. We know that there's issues with human decision making as it stands right now. So the last thing we want to do is to import the issues that we have in the current system into this new augmented system with, uh, with AI kind of at the center. So one of the things, for example, that we call for and the Treasury Board Directive also calls for is the establishment of an independent oversight body that will monitor the use of AI across the board, not just in immigration, but everywhere. Because again, what came out of our conversations with the government is that this goes way beyond immigration. And for us, immigration was kind of an inroad into it, but really what we want to do is look at how AI is being rolled out um, across the government. And our next report is going to be looking at AI in the criminal justice system and policing. But really what's necessary is also transparency on part of the government. We need to know where exactly these technologies are being experimented with or used, and that way we will at least have a better idea of, of what's kind of coming down the pipe. And also, I think cross-sectoral conversations, just like this one that we're having right now, are so important. Bringing together policymakers, lawyers, civil society, technologists, academia. There's a lot of expertise already out there about AI and the human rights ramifications of it, but for some reason it's not filtering through to the nodes of power that are actually experimenting with these technologies. I mean, it was quite interesting for us from a methodological perspective when we were putting this report together because there really wasn't much out there about AI and immigration and the human rights ramifications. So it was interesting to kind of be at the vanguard of this, and I think the media attention that this report got really shows that people are interested in it and they are thinking about it. But what we need to do is we may need to make sure that human rights are part of the conversation, perhaps the central part of it. So I'll leave it there, and uh, we can hopefully have a really fruitful discussion. Thank you very much.